Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the History of the Cards, episode 86, Conversions. So, we last stopped at the passing away of Pope Gabriel in 1045 AD, which was right in the heels of the fall of Edessa in the east, where we last stopped two episodes ago. The only thing left to explore before moving on to a new chapter of our story, where everything comes together, is the situation in Egypt between 1037, when Radawan took power, to 1049, when the caliph died. There, not only a wave of persecution took place, as we discussed last week, but also a significant milestone in the history of the Fatimids. Radawan, a Sunni, was now ruling a Shia empire, a first in our long journey with the Fatimids. A momentous step that paved the way for Salah al-Din to eventually throw the whole dynasty in the dustbin of history. But more on that later on. For now, the news on the Fatimid's necks tightened, as not only Radawan took power, but a powerful king of Sicily, a certain Roger, landed in North Africa and started acquiring territory that symbolically at least belonged to the Fatimids. Farther, Radawan was not content with mere secular power as the vizier. No, he started taking active steps to erode the Fatimid legitimacy as chosen rulers by God. For example, building a Sunni madrasa or a school in Alexandria and going as far as recruiting a group of highly regarded scholars to render a theological opinion to remove Al-Hafiz as the Caliph. This last step, however, backfired, as the scholars were from all kind of different schools and sects, and in essence could not agree and gave all kinds of esoteric answers that were no use to Radawan and only made his long-term ambition clear to the Caliph, who, in response to protect himself from these plans, brought the only man who could be trusted to be loyal, as a countercheck to Radawan growing power. That man was no other than Bahrain, the Armenian. Remember him? Yeah, he was still around. So apparently, once he retreated to the monastery to live as a monk, the caliph went out of his way to make sure that he is not killed by Radawan. 
who, what is it out of naivety or patience, went through with it and let Bahram be. I mean, after all, as a monk with no army, he posed no danger. Well, now, two years later, in 1139, the caliph sent for Bahram and lodged him in the palace in the face of Radawan. In response, Radawan gathered the troops and surrounded the palace, intending to remove the caliph and Bahram in one fell swoop. He tried to finish first with the scholars. By now, the only way forward was a naked power grab. But here's the thing. Radawan was really unpopular in Cairo at this point. A cosmopolitan city where the Sunni elements were the weakest. Also, this was in the height of a famine, and the mob, who initially supported Radawan in his holy war against the infidels, were not too happy about the inability of their champion to feed them. So, the coup to depose the caliph turned into a revolution that deposed Radawan. As to be expected with these things, a perfectly timed religious announcement proclaiming the right of the caliph to rule, coupled with hunger leading to anger from the mob, coupled with a small army unit defecting in the right time, sealed the deal. Radawan had to flee the city, landing in Ashkelon, weakened, but still, with a lot of support outside Cairo as well as a loyal following in the army. And so, after regrouping in Ashkelon and adding a few Turkish mercenaries to his army, he returned to Cairo to finish the job that he started. But again, he failed. The walls of Cairo, plus whatever troops who were loyal to the caliph, managed to repulse him, which meant we were in an impasse with famine and civil war spreading plenty of misery. Radawan was not strong enough to take Cairo and depose the caliph, and the caliph, well, he too did not have enough troops to completely get rid of Radawan or propose a viable alternative. Was Bahrain in the palace at this point as an honored guest, essentially refusing to get involved in any way, sticking to the line about being a monk and only offering prayers to the caliph. He truly had lost all interest in the world. And really, even if he wanted to, he wouldn't have done much, as he died peacefully shortly after arriving in 1040 AD, still sticking to his monastic life and the bass of the least violence. Nonetheless, his legacy sort of lived on, as to manage the civil administration in Cairo, the caliph appointed a copt who Bahram had sponsored and mentored, a certain Abu Zakari, not as the vizier to avoid the bad optics that gave rise to Radawan in the first place, no, just as the head of the wines, you know, same job, different title. And with him, he also appointed a North African general, who was meant to keep the army in check. Unfortunately, the imams and the mob on the street 
so through the unusual arrangement. And after a very rocky and a difficult five years, Ibn Zakari was executed in 1145 and trumped up charges. As for Radawan, well, he eventually came to an arrangement with the Caliph to basically live in the palace as king to do what he wished, so long as he stayed away from the government and inside the palace. You know, kind of a glorified house arrest, if you will. But even then, he was just biding his time. By 1148, he arranged for a tunnel to be dug under the palace to free him. And as soon as he got out, he rebelled again, plunging the country into civil war for the third time now, just in the last 10 years. And this time, he managed to make it all the way inside Cairo and surround the palace itself, but ultimately failed again, getting assassinated by a unit of his soldiers, who switched side after the caliph bribed them. This was the last act of the caliph's reign, dying less than a year later after a very turbulent train that all but ensured the death of the Fatimids. Now, it was only a matter of when and who will do it. And just to close the loop inside the Coptic church, when Gabriel died, people were kind of tired of all the reforms and changes that he implemented. So, an elderly monk named Michael was picked who could not even read or write, and struggled with even praying the liturgy. He lasted less than a year, dying in 1146. In his short reign, a lot of the reforms that Gabriel took were reversed, simony being the most significant, as well as a few problematic traditions, you know, like dipping the body of the saints into the Nile so it floods. The reform of Gabriel and the counter-reforms by Michael made his eight months reign very turbulent, and he may or may not have been poisoned. As his biographer put it, who happened to be a future patriarch himself, quote, The monks from the cell of Kadran gave him poison until it became the cause of his death. And God knows if it was, as was said, concerning them or not. And he gives everyone according to his deeds. For context here, Kadron was another monk who was a contender for the office before Michael was ordained. He ended up being pushed out of the process for his ambitious scheming to become the patriarch. So... It's certainly within reason that one of his followers poisoned the patriarch. But anyway, poisoned or not, the point is, like I said in the last episode, Gabriel, despite all of his struggles, did not move the needle very much, given all the systematic problems that the Coptic Church had going on. And whatever small changes he managed to get through, Michael ended up reversing them very quickly. And that's where we would leave the patriarchy for now. 
as the next patriarch would be deeply in the middle of the politics of what is to come, i.e. the Second and Third Crusades and the rise of Salah There we last stopped when Edessa fell to the Suljuks under the warlord Zengi in 1145, which kicked off a major recruitment campaign in Europe, culminating in 1147 with the emperor of Germany, Conrad, and the French king, Louis VII, massing a 60,000-plus army to come to the Holy Lands. But the question was, come to do what exactly? Unlike the First Crusade, where the goal was clear to everybody, you know, take Jerusalem, the Second Crusade goal was more of a general kick the infidel Muslims around, which doesn't really translate easily to battlefield strategy or a plan. For some, like English and Dutch sailors coming along, kicking the infidel's butt meant jumping in a local fight in Lisbon and modern Portugal, assisting the Christians there against the Muslim occupant of the city, i.e., far away and has nothing to do with Jerusalem. For a few, it meant taking Edessa back. And for another few, it meant kicking the soldiers out of Anatolia on behalf of the Byzantines. But really, for most, they just wanted to avenge the massacre of Edessa. It did not matter where and how. So this was problem number one. Problem number two was with the direct involvement of kings and emperors, usually with big egos, the ship had way too many captains. Even if King Louis and Emperor Conrad agreed to see themselves equally, it was doubtful that they would treat the lowly prince of Antioch or the king of Jerusalem on an equal basis. Not to mention, the Byzantine emperor considered all of these guys as filthy barbarians who needed to supplicate themselves before him. This was no time for calculation and scenario planning, so. No, it was time to take the cross and come to the Holy Lands. And so, in mid-1147, the armies of Conrad and Louis started their overland journey toward Constantinople following on the steps of the First Crusade. Separately, as not to overtax the farmers on the way, but hopefully together at some point. Unfortunately, unlike the First Crusade, where the Byzantines were fully on board and the whole thing was kicked into motion by Alexios, the Byzantine emperor, the Second Crusade was absolutely dreaded by the Emperor Manuel, the current occupant of the palace in Constantinople, and a grandson of Alexios. Looking at Antioch, a former Byzantine territory, but now a crusader state, he understood the threat that these armies presented. At best, they would replace the soldiers as a new hostile neighbor. At worst, they would take Constantinople itself, if they could. And so, he was not very helpful 
to the armies of the Second Crusade. Locked in a long-running war against the Seljuks at this point, Manuel, when he heard about the Crusaders, arranged a truce with the Turks to make as many troops as possible available to deal with the Crusaders if need be, which almost happened, as during the journey itself, the Byzantines and the German skirmished several times, coming very closely to a full-blown war. And the French, well, standing on the walls of Constantinople, one of their bishops gave a fiery sermon, inciting the soldiers to attack and take the city. Before King Louis intervened personally and put an end to that discussion. The point is, the Byzantines were not helpful. And he believed some of the sources were even plotting with the Turks against the Crusaders. Also, this is likely not true. And to make matters worse, the Germans and the French, marching separately as mentioned before, were not very big on communication. So, when the Germans crossed the Bosphorus first, rather than wait for the French on march together, Conrad just decided that he can do it on his own, and went to conquer the capital city of the Seljuks in Anatolia. A very naive mistake, as the Seljuks were fully prepared for the Crusaders this time, and through their march constantly harassed them with hit-and-run attacks. And whenever the Germans lined up for the heavy charge, well, the Seljuks would feign a long retreat until the charge line is broken, and then attack. There wasn't really a single decisive battle, but Conrad's army was losing more men every day, and he himself was wounded. And so, he gave up, and retreated to the Greek territories to wait for the French. And when the French showed, the combined armies tried again. But for the second time, the Seljuks just kept harassing them, never allowing themselves to be locked in battle. The combined armies did okay initially, but in early January 1148, while crossing a mountain in Anatolia, in the middle of a harsh winter, mind you, they were caught in a trap, and the Seljuks inflicted heavy losses, almost capturing Louis himself. And so, recovering from that raid, the Second Crusade had to pivot and try a different approach. They gave up on defeating the Seljuks in Anatolia. Now, they could either call it a day and go back to Europe, or find a way to bypass the Seljuks altogether and sail to the Holy Lands and fight someone else there. You know, declare victory and go home as heroes. Naturally, the latter option was chosen. But as you would expect, the whole army could not take ships, as it was way too expensive and even if they had the money, to be honest, by this point, there wasn't going to be enough ships available for everybody. And so, only a tiny group from the original army made it to the Holy Lands by ship, 
The rest were instructed to try and make it by land, where most either died off by being picked off by the Turks one by one, or simply from exposure and starvation. Eventually so. The king and those who were important slash rich enough to take the ships made it. Louis arriving in Antioch in March 1148, and Conrad making it to Acre later on. Now, to be clear, most of the Germans by this point had either died in Anatolia or abandoned the campaign and returned home, rather than go with Conrad by ship. So, it was mostly a French operation at this point, with symbolic German participation. Also, in Antioch, Louis arrived to somewhat an awkward situation. The Prince of Antioch was his wife's uncle, and was naturally concerned about expanding his own territory, maybe even get back Edessa if possible. But Louis, well, he kinda had enough of fighting the Seljuks, and did not want to take part in any real battles. He just wanted to go to Jerusalem, maybe raid a defenseless city or something on the way, and call it a day. Especially as Zengi, the stated enemy of the Second Crusade, have been assassinated a year earlier. His domains were now split. His older son got Mosul, while the younger, Nur al-Din, got Aleppo and the Syrian territories. The Antokian prince wanted to attack Aleppo, and Nur al-Din, before he is able to consolidate his power. King Louis wanted no part of Aleppo or Nur al-Din, not to mention he had, perhaps unwisely, brought his wife to the campaign, Eleanor of Aquitaine, future mother to Richard the Lionheart and a couple of other kings. At this point, though, she was a 20-something queen, was a mind of her own, and she refused to leave Antioch, supporting her uncle over her husband, which was spilled into a rumor of an affair between them and caused all kind of headaches for the French king, eventually arresting and then later on divorcing Eleanor when they made it back to Europe. The point for us is, Nuruddin was left alone, and Edessa was abandoned to its fate, which included a second massacre for those who survived the first one, following a half-hearted crusader raid unrelated to the second crusade. Finally, so, after this long and convoluted journey, in June 1148, Conrad, Louis, and most of the nobility of the Holy Lands were able to meet together in the same place, very close to Jerusalem. There, a council was assembled to decide where they should attack before declaring victory and going home. It was not the lost Edessa, or the strategically located Ashkelon, or the capital of Nuruddin, Aleppo. Now, out of all the possible targets, the crusader have picked Damascus. 
who, if you have forgotten, have bade the crusaders a few years earlier to defend them from Zangi, and were on and off a client state. So, why Damascus, you ask? Well, it was simply the easiest and closest target, at least on paper. Some historians take the view that somehow a game of 3D chess was being played here, where by attacking the weakest link in the Muslim state surrounding Jerusalem, the crusaders were actually preventing a future unification of those states. But I don't really know if that level of analysis was performed from the same folks who brought a 60,000 army across a 2,000 mile journey with no stated military target in mind, let alone a plan. If you ask me, Damascus was chosen because it was the most convenient and was perceived as an easy target. It didn't have an imposing impregnable castle as Aleppo did, nor it was a coastal city able to endure a lengthy siege like Ashkelon. And so, the combined armies of Jerusalem plus the Second Crusaders went to conquer Damascus in June-July 1148. As holy wars go so, conquering Damascus was neither convenient or easy. The Damascus populace brought up a very stiff resistance, fearing the fate of the populace of Jerusalem, who were all massacred if you remember. Farther, the ruler of Damascus played the tensions among the crusaders like a fiddle, sending a letter to the king of Jerusalem, warning him that it wouldn't be him that would rule Damascus when it falls. No, it would be one of the lords coming from Europe. And the same ruler also managed to spread rumors that Nur al-Din was coming from Aleppo with a huge army to attack the crusaders. Eventually, covered with confusion and fear, as one European source put it, the Second Crusaders retreated, having achieved nothing but pushed Damascus toward Nur al-Din and Aleppo, and paving the way for a unified Syrian state. Not to mention, in the process, sealing the fate of Edessa as part of the domain of Nur al-Din. It took another five years and a lot of diplomatic effort on Nur al-Din part, but he finally managed to take Damascus in 1154. The axis of Edessa, Aleppo, Damascus was the nucleus of a large and a powerful unified Syrian state that could challenge the existence of the Crusaders altogether. Not to mention, shortly after the failed siege of Damascus, Nur al-Din used the demoralizing defeat to attack Antioch, hoping to capture a strategic town, a very modest goal in the big scheme of things. But not only he was successful in taking that town, he ended up trapping the Antiochian army and killing the city ruler in a battle where a Kurdish general named Sharku, the brother of Shadil Ayubi, first brought to prominence under Zengi, played a prominent role. After the victory, Nuruddin 
never truly pursued Antioch itself, rather preferring a more indirect subjugation with a humiliating treaty and a tribute. As this victory was before acquiring Damascus, and he was operating with a healthy respect for the Byzantines, and preferred leaving Antioch as a buffer between their domains. But after 1154, when Damascus fell and Syria was unified under his rule, it was time to, as one of his court poets put it, to bass in the waters of the Mediterranean. It wouldn't be easy so, and himself would not survive long enough to do it, and to be honest, was both Egypt and the Crusaders weakened and threatened by the emerging Syrian state, maybe both of them can come to an agreement. Maybe a previously unsinkable alliance between Shia Cairo and Christian Jerusalem can stop the ambition of Nuruddin. Or maybe to take Jerusalem, Nuruddin would realize that he must first take Cairo. Thank you for listening. Farewell and until next time.